Well, hey there, folks. A uh, little intro here. You're listening to the Michael Clifford interview of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. I just wanted to note that been a little bit lazy this week, but I still wanted to make sure we got a second episode of the pod out. So I wasn't able to get into the editing bay. So if the sound quality is a little bit subpar, well, you know why. And you know where to find me. Cuss me out and maybe it'll motivate me to do better in the future. If not, yeah, maybe I skate by on this one. Uh, it's up to you to decide. Anyways, it's a great interview with Cliffy. Uh, I really hope you enjoy it, and I hope that my laziness doesn't detract from it. All right, I'm very excited today uh, for another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast uh, to be joined by Michael Clifford of DauberHockey.com, Slim Cliffy himself. Cliffy, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Um, I think I'm, I'm managing uh, a lot better than... than than some people are unfortunately you know there's it's been a pretty tough weekend uh, especially down south and it's been a tough you know nearly three months now um, in North America and all across the world so I think relatively speaking doing pretty well um, and it's nice just to hop on here and just, just to talk some hockey you know just for like an hour it's just those little escapes I've, I've found uh, are, are very helpful on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, you said it. Like, I've been trying to avoid as much as possible commenting on, like, all the terribleness that's been going on. Uh, yeah. Not just because, like, I, I feel like I'm not informed enough, but also because I want to give people a distraction. And I want to give myself a distraction. Like, this is just, yeah, like you said, it's, it's pure escape. You, even prepping for these, I, I could dive in and lose myself for, like, three or four hours on a topic and then just not even think about just all the insanity and and sadness and so yeah let's let's spin it around let's get angry about sports because that's <laughs> what they're for that's exactly and that's what we do best really absolutely uh so like this is the time of year when like shit is happening this is like the best time to be a sports fan and now it's just not at all so how have you been keeping yourself entertained uh, I think like a, like a lot of people, I've been playing some video games. Um, when I was a teenager, there's a game called Counter-Strike. It's a, like a first-person shooter. Um, I played it a lot when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, played it competitively, but I didn't really play it. And, and it's still going now. There's still millions of people that play it. I just, I uh, kind of let that go for like 15 years. And I, I, you know, I took this time to pick it back up and it's, you know, it's kind of like falling in love with something that you were in love with 20 years ago all over again. Right. So um, that was kind of been one of my bright spots, but uh, just doing that, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading. Um, I like to read a lot of nonfiction, like history and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's stuff that you read about that happened 60, 80, a hundred years ago. seems awfully prescient right now. And uh, you know, just, Trying to do my best. I think one thing that I, I can't recommend enough is, you know, my job in hockey, a lot of it is sitting on Twitter and just gathering information and taking that information and trying to make projections and, and so on and so forth and doing that day in, day out. So you get into the habit of just being on, on social media a lot. And I, I, I've found just you know, take a day, take two days where you don't even log on Twitter, don't log on Facebook. Like, honestly, like, um, until this weekend, you probably weren't missing anything. So um, 
that's I, I guess that'd be my one piece of advice is to find other things other than the internet to keep you entertained whether it's watching movies whether it's reading books um, whether it's taking up some exercise whatever it is is just find ways that aren't on the internet to keep yourself entertained um, even video games like you know the, the chatter this weekend has been uh, to be blunt like just brutal um, on, on video game chatter. So I've ha even had to cut back on that lately. It's just, I, I think people have to find ways to unplug to just to kind of try to make it through on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's It's been a long time since I've been a video game guy. Like certainly I, I loved them growing up and even into my, my early twenties. But uh, yeah, like you said, like finding other things to keep yourself preoccupied and preoccupy your time. I just found myself with so many other hobbies that video games just completely fell by the wayside for me. But uh, I do remember Counter-Strike in university and I remember being absolutely terrible at it and getting destroyed on the, uh, the local area network. So uh, nothing but terrible memories of, of that game, even though it was, uh, it, it, it was a good entertaining game. Um, you mentioned picking up books. I've been, uh, plugging away at uh, Aldous Huxley's A Brave New World. Uh, I, you know, I got like four chapters in and then just like threw it away uh, several years ago. I've been diving back into that one. I'm giving it another shot. Uh, what's the best book that you picked up? Uh, one book that I think everybody should absolutely read is called The Radium Girls by Kate Moore. And it's about the women who worked in the uh, dial painting factories in the 1910s and 1920s in America and what they would use they would use radium um, paint like paint that had radium in it like radioactive radium um, and they would paint the dials so that they would paint the dials of uh, you know aircraft instruments or tank instruments or you know whatever it might be watches um, they would paint those dials but obviously they're working with radium there wasn't any protections and it was just the whole story of them working and them slowly their, their health deteriorating you know at the time radium wasn't really well known to be a poisonous or radioactive material sorry so um, there wasn't a lot of material on it and it's just and it was just a fight of these women to not only have their disease recognized um, but to be compensated for it and to you know bring forth actual you know legitimate change in workplace hazard laws and, and, and things like that and it was just just start to finish it's hard to put down and when you look at um you know like i, I said earlier you just got to look around you to see how pressing a book like that can be so i found uh you know the radium girls by kate moore is one of one of the best books i've ever read i finished that um actually i finished that before all this started i finished that just after christmas right now i'm reading the nuremberg diary by gustav gilbert and it's actually the psychiatrist, psychiatrist that um, interviewed the Nazi war criminals before, during, and after their trials in Nuremberg. And it's just, you know, a look into the mind of the people that created, you know, the evil war, the evil Nazi war machine starting, you know, in the 1920s all the way through the 1940s. And it's, it's you know, it's not just Hitler, it's all the, his lieutenants and commanders under him. And, so I, I'd say, you know, if you're into nonfiction, those are, you know, I read a lot of nonfiction. Those are the two books um, that I'd recommend. Radium Girls by Kate Moore, uh, Nuremberg Diary by Gustav Gilbert. Um, I did read, I don't know, are you a Game of Thrones fan at all? 
I am, but I refuse to touch the books until he finishes them. And uh, I hate to be a pessimist, but I don't think he's going to finish them. But <laughs> yeah. at least the show is over. So, like, I'm, I'd be willing to dive into them. Like, I hear nothing but great things. I'm sure they're wonderful. The show was magnificent. Um, and I'm definitely, I'm the type of guy who, if I read something and then watch the, like the video made production after, whether it's the movie or the TV show, like the video version is terrible compared to like what your imagination concocts reading the book. Yeah. So I would much rather having watched the show, go and read the books, but like, ultimately I, I don't think I'm going to get there because neither is George R. R. Martin. Yeah, exactly. Like I keep... Uh, saying on Twitter, George drop wins because I'm just waiting for Winds of Winter. But I had read the the five books, you know, prior to the pandemic, prior to everything breaking down. But uh, once I started, I read the Fire and Blood um, anthology, and that's they're making that's the prequel, I guess, that they're making at HBO. It's going to be based off Fire and Blood, and it's the history of the Targaryen. Uh, I thought family. they canceled that one now. No, they canceled the Long Night. The one I about they, I thought they canceled both of them. No, okay, I think maybe it was. I'm wrong. Yeah, I think it was just the long night. Um, uh, maybe you're right, but anyways, um, the Fire and Blood one about the Targaryen uh, family. See that thing? I read it because um, I, you know, I'd finished the books and I wanted some other reading material, and I finished Fire and Blood, and it's only the first half of their history. So not only does George have to finish uh, Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring, but he also has to do the second half of the Targaryen anthology. And I'm thinking, like, I'm with you. Like, he can't get this all done. And I'm wondering what the priority is going to be, because if they are going to make that HBO show, and again, um, you know, I'll have to look that, look that up, um, they're going to need both anthologies because this isn't, it's not written history. It's not in the books, right? Like, he has to come up with it. So I, I'm wondering if he doesn't finish Fire and Blood first before he gets back to A Song of Ice and Fire. I, I, I don't know. It would kind of suck if he does that, but I could kind of see why they would too. Yeah, maybe he's just really good at starting things. <laughs> he's like me then. You should yeah. see my, my, my list of article ideas is like 30 pieces long and I haven't done one of them yet. Yeah, sometimes you just got to kill your babies, right? The old uh, stand-up comedy thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I just wanted to cycle back to uh, to that Radium Girls book. So um, are you telling me that they're why I have to sit through hours of uh, health and safety training every year? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. Uh, well, no, but I, maybe they're the reason that you can sue your employer if something happens. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to have to dive into that one. That one definitely uh, tickled my fancy. Like, dark but not as dark as uh, the Nuremberg one you were talking about yeah no it's it, it's dark but it's also hopeful it, it, it is a hopeful book at the end and I, right. I think people should take that away from it as well right because they upgraded from radium paint to lead paint <laughs> well you know progress is it is glacial but it is progress of course. Um, I, I can't have you on here without uh, talking a little bit about uh, sports documentaries. Uh, we, we both, we had a little chat on Twitter about uh, the, the Dorktown uh, Mariners series that's up on YouTube. Um, what studio for you is making that so good? The thing, and, and what you were mentioning, it, it's, uh, it's 
put out by SB Nation on their YouTube channel, and they have a mini series called Dorktown, and it's just you know weird stories and facts, and they make videos about them. What stands out to me is like it's the way that it's done, right? Um, he, the guy that does it, John Bois, or I don't even know if he if he pronounces it the French way. It might be just John Bois. Um, anyways, he the way he does it is he just uses Photoshop and Apple Movie Editor and whatever. Like, like he he these aren't videos with, you know, it's good production value. Obviously, that's why people watch them. But it's not something made by you know a big uh, media company or something like that. This is it's just two guys sitting at a computer, and I think that kind of I don't I don't want to say emotional attachment but it's kind of almost more personal it's more intimate you know what I mean like it feels like it feels like you're sitting down with John himself and he's telling you this story and I think that's kind of the mark of a great storyteller is that it's not so much the story you're telling it's can you captivate the audience with what you're saying and how you're presenting it. And I think John uh, and his partner uh, on the show, Alex Rubenstein, do a fantastic job of that. And it's and it's comprehensive too, right? Like you're talking about the entire history of the Seattle Mariners, and it was going back to the 1930s and 40s when they first tried to get a team there. Um, that's not something, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a Seattle documentary or a Seattle Mariners documentary, period. Um, you know, maybe some stuff on Ken Griffey Jr. or something like that, or maybe on Ichiro or the 2001 team that won 118 games or whatever it was. Uh, you might get some small snippets of that, but you never get everything in one place. So not only do you get a great story, and the way he tells it, like it's just such a dry, dry sense of humor. Um, the way he tells it, the, the story from start to finish, it's just so well done. It's so well researched that um, it's both – and you know it's entertaining and informative and i think being able to do that and still bring in hundreds of thousands of views on the seattle mariners um i think kind of kind of shows just how good of a storyteller that he is and i'd recommend people go to sb nation and look up anything john bois has done um you know he'd He's done stuff like made the hardest golf course possible in some golf game back from 2009 or something like that. Um, he's done, you know, he, he did his, uh, a bunch of series on, on weird uh, sporting events. Like he did one, I think it was like the 1908 St. Louis State Fair or National Fair or something like that, where some guy got shot on the marathon and one guy was drunk and one guy had to be taken to the hospital. And anyways, it was just, it was just a great story. He just, he just tells the story so well that you just can't help but listen. I'd really recommend that anybody that's looking for something to watch, something a little lighter, um, just head to um, SB Nation's channel on YouTube and look up Dorktown and Seattle Mariners and just you won't be able to stop watching. Yeah, I was struck by like how simultaneously like attainable like the the work done on the videos was while also still being like in, completely beyond my capacity both like creatively and just like technically yeah and then and that's the thing right is like i you know like i said it's just photoshop and apple editor like and like you said it it looks attainable it looks like something somebody can do but you know when you step back and you start to think about it you just think like he's pulling up newspaper clippings from you know 1936 and 1948 and you know that takes research going to a library you know to look through the microfilm and all that 
I just think it's it's the research that he does. Um, you know, people can put together videos. What separates him um, is not only the entertaining way that he presents everything, but I think it's the research because everything's just so thoroughly well researched that you can just tell that there's a lot of time and commitment put into it. Yeah, over under uh, like five and a half hours spent looking at microfilm for that documentary. How many? How many? Oh, I, I would, I would, I would take the over on that. Like, I could, I could definitely see that just being like a twelve-hour day at a library, just sit there, just say like, I'm gonna get this all done in one day and just not leaving until it's done. And so again, okay, over under five and a half Adderall pills on that twelve-hour day. <laughs> um, I, I would say under for me, but. But if somebody were to go over, I would say, go, fill your boots, man. <laughs> um, same question uh, for, for how, ma how many uh, Adderall pills over under five and a half do you think I've taken uh, in my lifetime? Oh, how many that you've taken? I don't know. Yeah. I'll, I'll say over because you went to university. <laughs> so surprisingly, I was, uh, I was the renegade who went against that. It was just energy drinks and staying up all night for no good reason. And yeah, see, I, I, I never did either. Like, I, I was the guy that just drank coffee, um, you know, maybe chew tobacco or something like that. I did. There was one paper I did. I remember, like, I completely forgot, forgotten about it or something like that. And it was, it was a 10,000 word paper and I had three days to do it. And I just, I, I knew a buddy that had some Adderall. So I was like, listen, man, I'm going to need some for the next couple of days. So I was up for literally like three days straight, just trying to finish a 10,000 word essay. And I just said, never again. Yeah. I, I think I was turned off by that stuff by, uh, Oh God, what's that movie where, uh, Jared Leto has got the, uh, the Requiem for a dream. Yeah. Yeah. After seeing the, the lady go crazy on pills in that movie, I uh, <laughs> never wanted to go anywhere near speed. Yeah, like seeing that movie as like a 15 or 16 year old when I saw it, that was traumatizing, man. Absolutely. I Like, honestly, why do they spend so much money on these like corny anti-drug policies when they could just show kids that movie? Yeah, exactly. Like you get to grade nine high school or something like that. First day, just plop them down, watch that for 90 minutes. And then you, then you don't have to bring it up again for the next four years. Yeah, it's, uh, you're in the clear. <laughs> yeah um circling back to that that dorktown uh documentary uh what was what do you think the craziest story in that whole recounting was i mean I, like i want to talk about or at least mention like all the pranks right like there was the prank of um what was it he brought a cow or uh, ken griffey brought a cow was it a cow into Lou Pinella's office? I believe it was a cow. I'd, I'd heard about the, uh, the prank pulled on uh, the, the Phoenix Suns GM once upon a time where they put a goat in his office and it shit everywhere. And apparently the, the cow <laughs> prank was the same thing. Well, I don't know how you could expect it to go any different, really. Yeah, absolutely. Like, have you ever been to a farm? A, that's what they do. They, like, it goes in one way, it comes out the other. Yeah. Yeah, it, there was that, and then there was the the hotel furniture, where they just took all, I, I forget which teammate it was, but they took all his hotel furniture and just stuffed it all into one room, like the bed, the couch, the table, the chairs, everything. Um, well, wasn't that I, one I, also the coach? Yeah, maybe it was. Wasn't he, like, yeah, de was. devastated by it completely, like, didn't sleep? 
Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. I can't, that. I can't, I can't remember. I just remember it like, like the amount that he was alarmed by what had happened with all his furniture and like the yeah. buzzer wouldn't work for the room. Oh, yeah. And I have to watch yeah, it again, and, I guess. Yeah, no, and, and, and one and you just you know, just thinking back to those Seattle Mariners teams, like those teams in the nineties, that like that's when I became a baseball fan. And like I didn't know that the only reason Ichiro didn't show up until two thousand one. Was it two thousand one or two thousand two? Anyways. The only reason I didn't know about 2001 no it was 2001 because everybody okay. everybody had, everybody had just gone like um you know randy was gone and a-rod was gone um i didn't know that the mlb rules of transfer with the japanese team were the only reason ichiro wasn't there in the late 90s when griffey was there and randy johnson was there and a-rod was there and jay buner was there and edgar martinez was there like when they had all those guys on the same team the only reason ichiro wasn't in the outfield with them was MLB's transfer rules. So he had to wait until 2001 when he was 26 or whatever it was. Like, could you imagine the lineup of having Griffey and A-Rod and Ichiro and Edgar? Like, you're never getting through that. So Yeah, but at um, the same I, time, I, it's the Mariners. And if that doc taught us anything, they would have found a way to fuck it up. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly, and I like you, you never think about all the bad years, right? Like, like I said, I didn't, I was born in the late 80s, I didn't become, I was a baseball fan in the 90s, so I don't remember the 70s and 80s Mariners when they were winning, you know, 70 or 80, 80 games, maybe at the most year after year. Like, so I kind of feel bad for those players or for those fans, but um, it, it's just a fascinating documentary, really funny. Like, I almost made you know, you almost made me want to go back and rewatch it because the yeah. first episode is the first. This this is all the listeners need to know. The very first episode is titled "No or We Don't Condone Arson," and it's all about <laughs> a baseball field burning to the ground in Seattle, trying to get another baseball uh, stadium out of it. So, if burning baseball stadiums to the ground to get another baseball stadium doesn't tinkle your fancy, I don't know what will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my buddy thought that the greatest feat uh, in that whole documentary was Griffey up and leaving and driving 43 straight hours from Seattle to Orlando, which is like as far as you can drive in the contiguous United States. <laughs> um, and wasn't there another story of a, who was it? Was it a pitcher that got rocked and he just took, jumped in his car and drove away and just never came back? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can't I, remember I, who that was either. Yeah, I forget what it was, but it was a pitcher just got absolutely – or no, 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 no. It wasn't a pitcher. It was um, um, Burns. Uh, what was his first name? Um, not Ed Burns. Anyways, it was uh, – it was. I, I know who he is because he's on MLB's TV channel now, like as the commentator – not a commentator, but like a pundit or whatever. Um Eric Burns, that's what it is. He just he, he just had enough and he just opted, picked up all his stuff and hopped on a bike and became a cyclist. <laughs> oh God. There's too much, too much funny stuff in that documentary. I really recommend people go watch it. Absolutely. Um I, I won't explain what blurping is, but uh like you, I became a baseball fan in the 90s and I had myself a Sports Illustrated subscription in uh in the mid and late 90s. And I definitely 
read that story in Sports Illustrated about Jay Buhner's blurping and like cackled as a 10 year old. <laughs> and then it was, and then completely forgot all about it. And then just had it brought right back up for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd never heard of that either. So you learn, you, this is a documentary where you learn everything, you know, you learn um, about the Seattle Mariners, you learn about blurping, you learn a whole bunch of stuff. My last question on this topic is like, was, are the Mariners like that special or could you do something like this? If you, you know, took over five and a half Adderalls and, and spent, you know, multiple days in the library digging up every ridiculous story about a 40 to 50 year old franchise. I think, I don't know, like Seattle's special in a way, because like he mentions, um, they're pretty far away from everything, right? Like when you look at the big four sports, um, the only other city that's really near them uh, that has a team is Vancouver with the Canucks. And Seattle doesn't even, well, they didn't have an NHL team. They will in a couple of years, but they are different in that sense. Like they're their own kind of little world. Like there's no natural baseball team for them um, to be rivals with. There's no natural basketball team for them to be rivals with when they had a basketball team. Portland. Like, there's no, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Portland, you're right. Um, and see, that's how well my brain is working here at 10 o'clock at night on Sunday. <laughs> um, you know, Seahawks definitely have their um, rivals as well, but that's more from playoff runs and championships and stuff like that than it is just from, you know, um, geographic rivals. So it is kind of their own li little island there. I mean, you go back to, like you said, any franchise that goes back to the 60s and 70s, there's going to be so much crazy stuff. Like, I mean, I'm just picturing, you know, do one on the Boston Bruins from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? Like the Mike Milbury going in the stands and beating a guy with a shoe. Um, uh, but, you know, Bobby Orr coming in and just changing the game um, by himself while also playing on a team that just beat the hell out of everybody. So you had the mix of the smash and bash or whatever you want to call it. So, um, you know, I think there would be interesting teams, but just because – the Seattle Mariners are who they are. And it's another thing is that they're not a championship team, right? Like they've never been to the world series. Um, this isn't, you know, this isn't a, a team that if, if you put, if you look at almost any other franchise, like try to imagine a franchise that started in the seventies and hasn't been to the finals once and is still around and still has a fan base that, um, wants to keep the team around and a vibrant enough fan base that they don't really have to worry about finances, even though they are kind of a smaller market team. So I just think they're, they're kind of unique in that sense. I, you can absolutely do documentaries about this. There'd be a lot of interesting teams um, to talk about. Um, doesn't matter. You know, you think about the P, P, P Rose's Cincinnati Reds or something like that. Like there would be a lot of teams to talk about, but I think just because Seattle's, you know, they're, not only are they geographically isolated, but they're kind of like the lovable losers too, right? So I, I think there's just so many things, so many check marks on their side of the ledger that it's it's it'll be hard to replicate, let's say. Yeah, I think that what I'm learning is I will watch a sports documentary about just about anything. Like I, I threw out the question, is there anything that we couldn't do uh, a last dance type documentary on that people wouldn't watch and someone tweeted at me like circumcisions and I was like dude pain olympics is a thing like we will watch a documentary on anything yeah like there's literally a tv show um 
on history, I think. And it's just how much pain can people tolerate, you know, like different levels of burns and, and, you know, animal bites and stuff like that, and venom and, you know, poisonous snakes. And um, like, there's literally TV shows built around people just taking an obscene amount of pain. Like, I don't, there's nothing that people wouldn't watch right, right now, but it, I don't, I don't know if, if you do, uh, if you do a 10 part documentary on, uh, you know, the Minnesota wild or the Winnipeg jets, I don't know if you're going to draw 7 million viewers like ESPN did with the Bulls, but I, I think it would still do pretty well. Well, I would watch at least a one episode documentary just on the decision that they made in 2000 when they were doing the, when uh, Minnesota Wild and the Columbus Blue Jackets joined the NHL and to determine because they couldn't have the number one pick. So to determine what, who would pick third and who would pick fourth, they flipped a double-sided coin with the Minnesota Wild and the Columbus Blue Jackets on opposite sides of it. and I would watch a documentary just on the, the decision and the making of that coin and where that coin is now. <laughs> I like, I don't even remember that story. Yeah. I only the, know uh, it because I did the 2000 redraft and it popped up and I was like, this is crazy. The, they flipped the coin, Bill, da Bill Daly flipped the coin. It lands up for the wild, but it fell off the table. So he's like, no, it fell off the table. We have to flip again. Like it's the, the Friday night light story where they can't figure out what side is heads. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, I, I never knew that story. So um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess it, that would be one thing I'd definitely love to at least read something more about. I'm going to have to go look that up when we're done here. Yeah, and the difference was you can have Marion Gabryk or Rusty Klesla. Yeah, he had a fine career, though. Yeah, but he's not Marion Gabryk. Yeah, no, he's not. I mean, <laughs> Gabrick's got a cup and he's got uh, 400 goals, so. Yeah. Kind of a stark difference. Um, yeah, I, 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 sh I should also mention that this is not the first time that Mike Milbury beating someone with a shoe has been brought up on this podcast. And he just joined Twitter and, like, the first thing he did was, like, I'm going to beat everyone off. And he's showing a picture of himself with a shoe. Like, uh, and I think, I think his second tweet almost got him ratioed out of existence. So <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, how well Mike Mulberry is going to enjoy his Twitter experience. Oh, I think he's going to love it. He's here to stir us up. Yeah, I guess, I guess that'd probably be the only reason for him to be on Twitter is just to kind of stir the pot, right? Yeah. The only thing that shocked me was that he wasn't already on here. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I, I understand you don't like the, uh, the 2014 format that the NHL came up with. <laughs> um, no, I don't. Um, I've written about that quite a bit at Dauber. I mean, I'll just go through it. One, I think to anybody that's looking, it seems fairly obvious why they're doing this the way that they are. Right. Uh, yeah, it's money it's because. Yeah, it's team 23 and 24, Chicago and Montreal. Um, those are, what, two of the five biggest markets, hockey markets, like with Toronto, um, Buffalo, and, and Boston, maybe? Or New York? Yeah. So, well, and, yeah. And New York is number 21, too, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so there you go. So you get three teams in that 
um, are some of your biggest markets. That's obviously why they're doing it. They're not doing this out of some sense of fairness or whatever you want to call it. I mean, the Montreal Canadiens are 10 points out of a wildcard spot with 11 games to play. They were not catching. You know what I mean? Yeah, they had like a so, 1% chance or less. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so this isn't about fairness. It's about money. Let's get that, you know, they can say whatever they want. It's not about fairness or, or trying to get, um, you know, teams that had a chance to give them a chance, et cetera. No, it's not. It's about having the New York Rangers and the Montreal Canadiens and the Chicago Blackhawks in the playoffs. Nobody really questioning why you're doing it. The other thing is, like, you're just introducing more vectors of transmission, right? That's all you're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, we are, you're adding four teams. You're adding, you know, they said max of 50, 50 people per team, probably 30 players, 20 personnel. So you're adding 200 more people um, into a situation uh, where there's already a, a, a global pandemic. So they're not doing this out of an abundance of safety. They're doing this for their economic situation. So that's what I like. It just bugs me when the messaging is so transparently a lie that the major media members will just parrot it and not and not even question it and won't even ask why 24 teams instead of 20 does this make medical sense like that question never came up so that really bothers me and so we're adding additional vectors we're um we're putting more people at risk we're obviously doing it just because of money it's not because of fairness 24 like 80 percent of the league almost almost 80 percent is like 77.8 percent or whatever the league is in the playoffs which is just completely stupid hey it's what they did back in the 80s i know (laughs) yeah yeah they also did a lot of cocaine back in the 80s but i don't think we want the players doing that right now i mean maybe they still do i don't know um, I think the LA Kings uh, might have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah. So, like, that's why um, I I recommended a 20 team. I thought 20 team would be a perfect solution. Teams 1 to 12 get a bye, and then 13 against 20, 14, 19, um, 15, 18, 16, 17, and, a, you know, what, what the current playing format is, the best of three, best of five, whatever, um, to get to the playoffs as the final four seeds. I think that's fine because then – you give the top 12 teams, you know, we'd be doing it by points percentage and be difference. It'd be different by actual points. So who knows where it would actually sit, but you'd probably give the 12 best teams in the league who would probably all make playoffs anyways, um, the buy. And then you'd have the actual teams near or on the bubble uh, playing for their playoff lives essentially to get in. I thought that made more sense. And then you do it, you know, there's fewer vectors of transmission. Um, you don't have to worry about as many people isolating, so on and so forth. But uh, that's not the direction they're going. And like I wrote about, I wrote about it in one of my Dauber ramblings this week. Like I've wrote about this return to play thing probably four or five times now. Like this is happening, right? Like outside, I mean, with the protests going on in, in America right now, we're not we don't know what um, the COVID-19 situation is going to be in the States a month from now. So, you know, we'll kind of take a wait and see approach, but as long as it's not cataclysmic sports are returning, like come hell or high water. It doesn't matter what any of the people say. It doesn't matter what fans say. It doesn't matter what uh, medical doctors, it doesn't matter what anybody says sports are returning. So 
I can't control that. So I'm, I've, I'm trying to stop like really venting about it because there's really nothing I can say anymore. My thoughts are already out there. Um, it's happening regardless. Like there's just nothing we can do about it. I just, all I pray for is that nothing really serious happens because we know there's already been um, some studies linking decreased lung function for people that get it. Obviously that'd be just, that'd be a death sentence for an athlete's career. Um, we have type one diabetics in the NHL, Max Domi being one of them. Um, he plays for the Montreal Canadiens, the team I follow. Um, they have former cancer, or they have cancer survivors in the NHL. Um, so there, those are people with, you know, and God knows what other people have underlying conditions. You know, we've seen players um, just fall from heart attacks in practice or, or in games because they have underlying heart conditions. And those are the things with underlying heart conditions. You don't know you have them. So now the players that don't know whether or not they'll be safe. I mean, they probably will. I mean, I'm not trying to sound like doom and gloom and super scary here. Like most, most certainly if a player were to catch it, they most certainly be fine, but there's the chance that they won't. And there's the chance that they don't know whether or not they would or not be okay. So I think there's still a lot here that can go wrong. It, there's a lot about it that makes me nervous. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I really want NHL playoffs. I don't even care if it's August or whatever. I would love to just sit on my back deck the second week of August with a few beers and watch some playoff hockey. It's just following the NHL as closely as I've had, I have for the last decade. I think anybody that does knows how incompetent this league is. Like they have a tough time putting together an award ceremony that can captivate attention for two hours. And they're supposed to put together a pandemic plan for thousands of people um, to essentially live in for two months. Um, I have concerns but I've voiced those at Dauber. I've talked about it on Twitter with people that wanted to talk about it. It's just, there's nothing I can say or do anymore. There's nothing I can say that will change anything. There's nothing anybody that can say that will change anything unless all the owners step up or all the players step up and say that they don't want to return. It doesn't seem like that's the direction anybody's going. So um, I think we just got to kind of accept it. Like this is coming. Um, and we just got to hope that it's that it ends up going as smoothly as humanly possible. Yeah. My stance has been like, like just assuming that all the medical and all that, like all the concerns are going to be taken care of as best as they can, because like far be it for me to sit back and armchair quarterback the, like the logistical handling of this thing when like, I just, I just want to watch hockey games, right? Like, I'm just, I'm rooting for it to come back like you. Um, and then, like, in terms of, like, what the format ultimately ends up being, um, I had, like, I had my own ideas. I really liked uh, what the NBA was batting around with their World Cup type idea, where, like, all the teams would get broken up into groups and, and seated by where they were in the standings. And then, but the NBA is also a league where it's a, the, the stronger teams are also more likely to win. So if you play eight round robin games or whatever it is, 
you know, a strong team's not likely to get bounced by a, a bad couple of weeks, right? Whereas in the NHL, that very well could happen. And it's also why it's like having, you know, teams like the Oilers or, or the Penguins who were 95% chance of making the playoffs, having to play teams that had less than 5%. Uh, it does seem a little bit unfair. But like, ultimately, everyone wants to get as many games as possible in so that's why you include as many teams as possible. Like it's, it's all about money, right? So you're trying to get as many teams in as possible and no, like the players aren't going to come back unless they have a realistic chance. So you could like come up with a system where the Canadians or the Rangers would have only had like a 1% or 3% chance of, of climbing the standings and getting into the playoffs. But ultimately like they wouldn't want to come back for that. Now you could, you know, you could force them to like, uh, the Hurricanes and Lightning, they voted against this proposal. So presumably they're being quote unquote forced into going. Um, but ultimately, like, I think Brian Burke, he, you know, he kind of, uh, he kind of thought of criticizing the 2014 format as a little bit like uh, criticizing a pretty girl for, for her shoes and like whatever, whatever the analogy you want to use, like the format is like, is small potatoes compared to the fight that there's going to be um, that we're seeing in baseball right now over like all the money and all the logistics and all that other stuff that like, I can't even begin to like climb into and pretend like I have a stance. Like I just like give it all to the players. Cause they're the ones putting it on the line. Like that's, that's, that's kind of where I land on this stuff. Um, I'd like a better format. I thought there was more creative ways to go about it, but ultimately like, I don't know, it's going to be bananas. They're talking about, playing games at all hours of the day like March Madness and like just if it's August if it's September like give me the days off work I'm gonna hook that directly into my veins yeah I said that to a couple guys I talk hockey with on Twitter um the reason why I think they chose I mean the obvious reason they chose 24 teams is like you we've talked about is Rangers, Blackhawks, Canadians are among the teams that are going to be let in. Um, those are some of the biggest markets and it gives them perfect opportunity to have those markets in the playoffs. But I think the reason they chose 24 teams in two hub cities, um, you mentioned playing games all day. What makes sense to me, um, especially early on when they're still doing the playing games or whatever is to have three games a day at each location. So you'd have six, you'd have 12 teams at each spot, right? And then you'd have six teams play one day and six teams play the next, and then six teams play the next day, and then six teams play the day after that. So you're getting um, games every other day, and you do that right through to the end of the of the cup final, so you can get this done as quickly as realistically possible. Um, I think that's why they did that. I think you're going to see games starting at like noon Eastern and then maybe like five Eastern and then like nine Eastern or something like that. I think you're, that's, and I mean, maybe they don't do three, maybe they back it down to two just because, you know, playoff hockey, what if you get a double playoff, uh, you know, a triple overtime game or something like that. I don't think you can have the last, last game of the day starting at, you know, midnight or 1230. Maybe you can, I don't know. This whole thing's so insane that <laughs> maybe they just do that anyway, but um, I, that's kind of what, what stood out to me as the obvious reason to pick 12 teams in, in two locations is that you can do six on six off at each spot, three games a day. Like you could get through, you could realistically get through the playing rounds in a week if everything breaks. Right. 
Yeah, I, I don't think they're, they're probably looking at a little bit over a week and probably looking at like a, a three week period to get through the play in round. And then um, the, the official first round is probably what they're looking at. Um, where do you stand on the, like the bracket style versus reseeding? Uh, I'm always for reseeding. I hate the bracket style. Um, I mean, we just saw it again this year. Like I know, I know everybody likes to make fun of Leafs fans because they keep getting bounced by, by Boston. But honestly, like look at the setup again this year. Um, if they don't do anything with the top four seeds in terms of reseeding, like a little mini tournament or whatever, um, Toronto's going to get Boston again in the first round, assuming they get past Columbus. Like I do enjoy. <laughs> watching Leafs fans lose but at the same time my family's full of Bruins fans so it doesn't get too much better for me and like I want to see some fresh matchups I want to see some different teams like uh, you know now that Montreal somehow found its way to the playoffs I'd love to see Montreal and Toronto um I don't remember the last time I watched them play in a playoff series um it's certainly been since I was in high school if not earlier uh if so you get reseeding it's going to be Montreal Boston most yeah, likely. I mean that's yeah, I mean that's fine. I, I I'm not expecting Montreal to get past the first round anyway. Yeah, but all I mean is that it would it would it would just give us a chance to get some fresher matchups. What I really wish they had done, and what I was clamoring for from the start, was to not even bother with East and West conferences, right? Because everybody's playing in a hub city. The reason to have an Eastern conference and Western conference is to limit travel. Travel doesn't matter if everybody's in a hub city, right? So. Um, I was kind of hoping that they go in that direction, but um, obviously that's not. that's far too outside the box for hockey. I know, but I th I thought it would have been <laughs> awesome. I mean, you, know, you, you, you can see a second round matchup of like uh, Vegas and Carolina or something like that. You know, I'm, uh, I'm with you. A playoff matchup that you never get to see almost maybe ever again. Um, I think yeah. it would have been an awesome. It would have been an awesome opportunity to do something a little bit different like that. And obviously the NHL being the NHL would not take advantage of that opportunity. All they can think of is getting Chicago and Montreal into the playoffs. Yeah, they didn't want to disrupt the integrity of the playoffs, which uh, means they have man. to keep West, West, East separated. That's part of the integrity. Those <sighs> might be the pillars of their playoff format. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, like, you know, they did have a chance to do something special with this. They didn't, but I wouldn't expect anything else from the NHL. Yeah. So I have an outstanding bet of uh, with one of my coworkers. We bet last summer after the uh, JT Miller trade where the Canucks gave up a first rounder thinking that they were going to make the playoffs. Um, so we bet that if the Canucks make the playoffs this year, I've got to rock a Canucks bumper sticker on my car all summer. And if they don't, then he has to rock an Oilers bumper sticker. And right now, like it's all riding on the Canucks Minnesota wild matchup. So I desperately need uh, Carol Kaprizov to be allowed to play for the wild and the NHL isn't going to allow it. And I'm angry about it, Cliffy. I'm angry. I'm, I'm really wondering like, I know the NHL doesn't want ringers brought in or whatever, but like, I don't know why they're being so strict about the roster limits. Like you have to, this is the opportunity to get um, as much talent on the ice as possible for every team. I don't know why the NHL wouldn't let teams take advantage of that. Now, obviously I wouldn't 
you know, you wouldn't want teams just to go and sign the top line from the KHL just to play on their fourth line or something like that, or the top line from Cheska, Moscow, or whatever, um, just to go play on their fourth line. You, but, you know, players that have already been drafted by an organization, I don't know why they wouldn't be allowed to play, but... Um, yeah, like, they let Kale McCarr play last year, and he was awesome. So, like, the the evidence is... Everyone loves this. Let's do it again. Yeah, and that's the thing with the NHL. If people like it, you can be sure that they're going to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, who do you think the uh, – who like, who would you bet on to win it all now that we have a format? That's an interesting question because I, I wouldn't even know how to start calculating the probability of this. I mean, I'm sure it probably takes some time to figure out, but – the teams playing the extra round, like having to play in to get to the playoffs, they're definitely at a disadvantage, right? Because it's harder to win five series in a row than it is to win four. But at the same time, those teams will be getting um, some getting the chance to knock some rust off, right? Like these guys, let's say they start August 7th, or let's say they start August 12th. It'll be exactly um, five months from the shutdown. So if they start August 12th and then the planes take two weeks, now we're looking at five and a half months of the top teams not playing. Now, let's say uh, – I'm not – They are playing round-robin games, if that I know, anything. I'm not saying this is going to happen. Yeah, but is it going to be the same? It's not. Like, right. I don't even think that anyone but the fans of those teams are going to watch those games. Right. Like they're going to be, they're, they're going to be like up-tempo scrimmages pretty much. So um, I'm wondering, you know, it's definitely a disadvantage to have to play the extra series, but if you get through, does having those, you know, three or four or five games or whatever of hard, intense hockey, playoff hockey, does that provide an advantage for knocking the rust off? Cause we know Teams coming off a bye do horrifically against teams that haven't. You know, we yeah, it was like, it was 0 11 this year. Yeah, we have four years of data. I think it's four years of data on this. Yeah, now that teams coming off the bye just get slaughtered. So let's say you know Columbus gets through and they play Boston in the first round. You know, if you're the Boston Bruins, they just beat Toronto. They Columbus just got back, you know, Seth Jones, and I, you know, I forget who else. Josh Anderson, like, Cam Atkinson, yeah, Cam the Ad- list Cam goes Atkinson. on and on and on. They've like, they so get all their players, they get all their players back, and then they just, let's say they take Toronto to five games. They just got five hard playoff games in. Do I want to play the Columbus Blue Jackets? You know, probably not. So... I think, like, at the outset, I would definitely say, you know, Boston or St. Louis or whomever, those top teams, would have the advantage because, you, you know, they only have to play four series to win the Stanley Cup. But once we get past the play-in round, I, you know, I wouldn't hesitate to take a team like Carolina or to take a team – I, you know, I want to say Nashville. I know people are probably going to kill me for that. I still think Nashville is so much better than they've shown that I can't help but feel, you know, maybe some time off 
time away would help them or something. I don't know. So that they can I figure out who they are because they didn't. Yeah, know I still at feel like year. Nashville should be a way better team than they are, right? Yeah. Like, so I'm I'm just thinking that if teams can get past the play-in, you know, I think they're at a little bit of advantage at least early on. Um, early on in the next series, whether that carries over, I doubt it. But um, you know, I I I would definitely take one of the top teams, like I said, like St. Louis or or, or you know, Boston or Tampa Bay or whatever right now, after the playing rounds, um, you know, I might be inclined to take somebody like Carolina or, or something like that. So I've got a few bets out there. Um, my big preseason bet was Carolina at 30 to one. And that's their current odds. Now, every single team that is, that has to play in the play-in round is sitting at 25 to one or better. Um, and then all the other, all the teams that have the buy are at higher odds. And like, you could basically, you could do the math on it. Like if you think that every series is 50, 50, just like clip the odds in half for where they roughly think that a team stands um, after the play-in round. But yeah. my, also my thought on this is that there may be an early advantage for the teams coming out of the play-in round that do survive. But once they get to what is now their third series, and if they're going up against a team that's only played one, they're going to be so beat up. Like, remember the Winnipeg Jets after playing the Nashville Predators in 2018? They go to the conference finals riding high. They just beat the best team. And then they get wiped out by Vegas in a hurry. And, like, they were just, like, completely shocked. And, like, they were so beat up from that Nashville series, they had nothing left. So I think yeah. that there's going to be a war of attrition. Every year it's a war of attrition, and that's going to be so much more compounded for the teams that have to play the play-in. Yeah, and and I think a lot of it is going to come down to injury luck too, right? Because, you know, players are going to be getting – and that's one thing that kind of grind, grinded my gears about Carolina complaining about the extra play-in is that if everything had proceeded as normal, they'd have been going into the playoffs without Dougie Hamilton, without Brett Pesci. I don't think they go very far without those two defensemen. So they might know, not even have made it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm with them that I wouldn't want to play the Rangers either. Like that really sucks for them. Cause I think the, like the Rangers were, you know, they swept that after, series. Yeah. And they were top them. 10, they were a top 10 team after Christmas. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't want to play them either, but they're getting back Hamilton and Pesci. And then, you know, all the, you know, Jake Gensel coming back and Vladimir Tarasenko coming back. And we listed all the guys in Columbus. Like, all those people are going to be healthy and coming back. But at the flip side, like I said, you're going to have players not playing for five months, five and a half months, you know, maybe four months, four and a half, and then they can get into training camp, five, five and a half before games. Um, there's going to be injuries. There's going to be a lot of injuries. I remember – um, there's some article about it in the KBO when the Korean baseball league started up after their shutdown, there's a ton of soft tissue injuries, hamstrings and groins and stuff like that, because, you know, guys have been sitting in their house for months. Um, right. You know, you, you do home workouts and a lot of guys probably have decent, you know, not all of them, but some of them probably have decent facilities that they can use. But a lot of them don't. I mean, I think it was Mackenzie Blackwood was using his dog for squats. Um, <laughs> like, these these guys haven't been um, 
at their level you know they're still better athletes than any of us but they're not at their level and a couple weeks of training camp in the middle of july is not going to fix that so i think a lot of it might come down to injury luck you know um pittsburgh could go into the play-in series against montreal and then two games in second game crosby pulls a groin or something like that or or toronto goes in against columbus and you know, the, his second shift, Mitch Marner strains his hamstring. I think you're going to see a lot of that happen. And whether it happens to your grinders or whether it happens to your stars is probably going to dictate how far you get in the playoffs. So, um, you know, I hope injuries don't become a big part of it because I hate injuries deci- essentially deciding games and series. Um, but I think we're going to see that happen a lot these playoffs. And I think you're going to see some frustrated fans because of it. Yeah, I'm optimistic that like whenever they get the phase two going, that's going to do wonders for these players. Now, how, you know, how much they're going to be able to do within that phase two is kind of going to be dictated by themselves. But I, I've I've got some optimism that it'll it'll help a lot to alleviate that because it'll like they could have over a month of of the phase two conceivably and then my other thought is that like right now they're talking about having 28 players per roster or whatever and it's like that needs to be bigger yeah if a team's gonna make it to the final that seemed like to me i when i i was talking about this on twitter with um actually a a local sports writer from around here and I thought they that it might be 35 because the way I looked at it is that you have your 23, you know, your 20 regulars, your three scratches plus 11 more, something like six forwards, three defensemen and two goalies or something like that. Yeah. You're um, going to need a lot of goalies. Like I think goalies, if anyone's getting wiped out, it's probably going to be them. Cause how do you oh, yeah. replicate every the team, training for that? No, every team should have four goalies. Um, and I think that's, that's something that I hope I I know that they the numbers floated was 28 or 30. I hope it's at least 30. It probably should be closer to 35. But again, you're just adding additional vectors. Like this is just yeah. that's just the thing, right? And that's something that I wrote about in my Dauber ramblings is that none of this is a good idea. All we're doing is picking the best bad idea, right? Like there are no good options here. If let's just assume that returning to hockey is a given. There are no good options. There's only varying degrees of bad. So let's just try to hope for the least bad options. That's why, like, I'd, I'd go for 35 players because I think teams could legitimately legitimately need 30, um, and then you still need guys there for practice. So um, I hope they do that. But, again, like I said, you're just adding additional vectors. So you're just constantly playing that balancing game of, you know, what's safe versus what's right. Well, maybe at uh, one of the hub locations, they'll have David Ayers as the Zamboni driver, so you could like sneak an extra guy in there who could be a goalie <laughs> so for like, anyone. Yeah, kind of. He's like uh, the Shohei Otani. He's just like <laughs> exactly. <that> yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to run through the uh, end of season awards ballot with me? Like, we don't have votes, but. Um, yeah, yeah I well, don't know. I think it's valuable to go through anyway. I mean, there's yeah, there's a lot that we. The one that I really want to talk about more than anything is the Hart Trophy. Um, okay. What what stands oh, out for you about the Hart Trophy? 
Well, I think it's pretty obvious that Leon Dreisaitl is going to win it, right? And Dreisaitl is one of those guys, like, I never – I was never super as high on him as others. I think I even said that before this season. I, you know, he certainly showed me, you know, showed me up, showed me wrong, showed me what an idiot I am this season. Um, I, you know, I'm one of those people. I still don't think he's quite as good as as he's given, but I still, he's still a lot better than I gave him credit for. Yeah, I've got but a the, tweet that um, I talked about. Drysidle, McDavid, and Nugent Hopkins losing like 25 goals combined because of shooting percentage regression, and none of that happened. Like I think even losing 10 games out of the season, they still surpassed their totals from last year. So I'm a moron. Keep that in mind. Yeah, I mean, they. I think the one thing that nobody really saw coming um, was all the power play points, right? Like. That's an ins- they put up an insane amount of power play points this year. I'm looking right now, and Drysaddle had 44, um, McDavid had 43, and seven fewer games. Like that's a big part of it is putting up those power play points. Like Drysaddle's never had 30 power play points in a, in a season before, and he had 44 this year. I mean, he had 11, 11 power play points just two years ago. So yeah, their power uh, play is organized chaos and it works for them because they're so, and it worked. Yeah. So, um, that's why I, you know, I'll I'll save the the fantasy discussion about dry for another day, but, um, I, I'm not so convinced that he's the slam dunk, um, hard trophy winner. And one guy I wrote about him before the break, this would have been back in February that I thought should be getting a lot more attention to was Connor Hellebuck. I mean, the new, the Winnipeg Jets, their defense is bad, like real bad. Oh, it's awful. Like, like amongst, like close to the bottom 10 in the league by, by shots against, I think. And I think by expected goals against their bottom five, like they're like not quite as bad as Chicago, but pretty close. And Connor Hellebuck not only has them officially in the playoffs now because of the planes or whatever, but he had them in a wild card in the first wild card spot, um, cleared by two points um, when the season was over or when the season paused. Now they had some games, you know, they had a couple games over everyone or whatever, but it, you know they had. Um, I'm just staring at it now. Plus 13 goal differential. Um, so it's not, you know, it wasn't one of those mirage records where they're just a terrible team. Well, they're not a very good team where they're a bad team getting in. But Hellebuck's just been absolutely absurd this year. I mean, you look at um, some of his, let's just call them lesser known or, or his underlying numbers. Um, goal saved, uh, a goal save above average, all it is GSA, GSAA, and all it indicates is how many goals a goaltender saved above average, like, like it says, but the way it works is that it it's, it's uh, referenced against the league average save percentage. So yeah. I and depending it, on where you look at it, um, you're also getting like shot locations and average save percentages for those shot locations as well, depending on where you get it. But he's like one or two with Tuka Rask, no matter where you look at it. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's him right up there with Rask and, um, 
again, he's doing, and that's shot volume, but that's also a lot of shot quality, right? Because we were talking about expected goals against. That's where shot quality comes in. And um, the Jets were one of the worst in the league at it. And he's still, like you said, he was right up there at, near the top of Tuka Rask. Now, if you look at different uh, measurements, um, you know, I'm looking at um, evolving hockey's uh, wins above replacement, their war metric. They were uh, Connor or uh, Connor Hellebuck was about 30% more valuable than the next best goalie, which was Tuka Rask. So <laughs> when you talk about a goalie, that's just, you know, are, at the very least near the top, probably way ahead of the field this year in terms of performance. And he has, a bad team. I mean, they are a bad team. There is no difference between the Chicago Blackhawks and the Winnipeg Jets other than Connor Hellebuck. And he took a bad, bad team to the playoffs. And I know, um, like, the definition of the Hart Trophy is most valuable to his team. And I hate just linking it to the playoffs. But even if, Let's say they weren't at 80 points, which had them in the first wildcard spot. Let's say they were just at 75, a couple points out. I would still have Connor Hellebuck at the top of my hard trophy list because without him, this is a lottery team. Like, not fighting for the playoffs. This is a lottery team. Like, this is a bad, bad team. And he just completely, single-handedly saved their season. So... You know, I understand why Leon Dreisaitl is going to get it. I don't even really want to argue with it. I mean, the guy put up 13 more points than anybody else. Um, only Connor McDavid had over 95 points um, along with Dreisaitl. So, um, obviously, he had a monster year. Um, I wouldn't really argue with it. But I think people are going to lose are going to lose sight of the fact that um, not only – like, people think Winnipeg is a good team. Like that's kind of the general consensus. Maybe yeah, not because they've been good for several years, but they fell they off completely. And they're and they're in a playoff spot this year, so people think they're just still good. Like that's the general public opinion. I'm, I'm I don't want to say it is, but I'm fairly certain that's the general public opinion. And it's not the case. This is a this is a bad team, but they're a playoff team because of Connor Hellebuck. And if that's not an MVP season, I don't know what is. So here, like I'm with you. The the heart, it's it's the guy who's designated most valuable to his team. So in my opinion, that definition means that every single goddamn year, it's going to be the goalie that outperforms expectations and drags his team either into contention when they shouldn't be or into the playoffs when they shouldn't be. Like every single year, it's going to be that outsized impact because that's just what goaltenders do in hockey, right? one guy gets to have way more impact than anyone else just because of how involved he is in literally 50% of the game. So in terms of that pure definition, Hellebuck, like all the way. And like, you, even if you look at uh, Don Luschichin's game score value added stat, I think, I, I don't think it's game score exactly, but he, he has some hybrid way of including the goalies in there. And Hellebuck is like on a scale of like nine to eight, uh, better than all the best skaters. So like Panarin and McKinnon and Pasternak are next at, at like 4.1 and Hellebuck is like 4.6. So like in terms of pure value, he like is most valuable, but I just, 
hate that definition. I would way rather celebrate the guy who was the best. And for me, that's not even dry saddle. Like I don't even think like as outlandish as his season, as his season scoring was not even the best guy on, on his own team. So um, I, like I almost can't vote for him. I would, I would maybe put him fifth on my ballot. I like, I don't know. I think that Nathan McKinnon and maybe Artemi Panarin, although Panarin, you know, rings out as like the guy who was absolute bananas on a dog shit team guy. And then like Pasternak's in there for me as well. Um, yeah. Like it's Hellebuck if it's, if you're going at like direct definition, most valuable, but for me, like, I don't know if the players are voting or most outstanding. I, I don't know. I think McKinnon. Like, I'm glad you brought up McKinnon because he was the another guy that I want to talk about. Um, just because they missed so many players for an impact players for so many games. Like, um, yeah, I think, um, uh, I think from the cap hit injury uh, percentage or whatever, they yeah. are like fifth behind only like Columbus and Pittsburgh among playoff teams. Yeah, I, I mean, Miko Rantanen missed what, like a month and a half or something like that? Six weeks, eight weeks? Um, uh, Gabriel Anaskoff missed a month. Kale McCarr missed some time um, more towards the end of the pause or before the pause. Um, you know, the goaltending situation was up and down. Um, they, you know, they've gone back and forth between Grubauer and Francis. Um, but despite all that, uh, Colorado um, was two points behind St. Louis at the break. Um, and they're, I think they're one of the four teams that would get the bye, right? Yeah, they're 100% in the bye. And, like, they look yeah, like they, a, a juggernaut they, heading yeah, towards. Yeah, St. Louis, Colorado, Dallas, yeah. Vegas. Yeah, so you know this—that was a team that was missing stars for months, and not only is Colorado still in a playoff position, but they're number two in the West by points, and they have the best goal differential in the West. On top of that, so I'm with you that I I hope McKinnon gets a lot more recognition because he should. Um, I still think it's Hellebuck. That's my opinion. Um, I, I know why you hate that definition. And and I don't want to make it seem like, you know, I would just take any any player uh, um, or any goalie that had a good season. Like last year, for example, John Gibson had a really good year on a terrible Ducks team. Um, but I never said that he should win the heart. I just said the Vesna. So I was kind of restraining myself a little bit there. Uh, so... Uh, no, just to get back to your Nathan McKinnon point, I agree with you 100% that McKinnon should be at least one of the three finalists. Um, he definitely carried that team for long, long stretches. Not only carried that team, um, made them one of the best in the league. So, uh, yeah, I'm with you on, on, on that. Pasternak, I know what you mean by Pasternak, but, I, like, I would never be able to pick one guy off that line and say – that's the, that's the heart trophy finalist. You know what I mean? I, like, yeah. I, all I don't like to hold that against players because you're, you're going to be able to say that so many years. Uh, but yeah. But are you really like, there aren't really a lot of lines like that top line of Boston. Like that's the same three players year in and year out that just tear the shit out of everybody. That's yeah, not, I guess. I don't know. You you could have said like similar stuff about McKinnon, Ranton, and Landeskog last year. Like I, I I don't know. I I just I don't like to I don't like to do it because um, it, it just 
like I don't know individual like there are times when there when individual player performance like supersedes that and there are times when just like a line just gelling together and are greater than the sum of their parts I think that that top line is like every guy is so good that maybe like they are greater than the sum of their parts but they're also like so great on their own that like I don't want to take it away from them yeah I mean I know what you mean like if they stay together they'd never win any individual awards but I mean that's just kind of the way I look at it and that's that's one of the reasons why um I have a tough time um even saying dry sidle uh for art or for heart trophy because I'll never be able to separate him from McKinnon right like even if dry side only played half the season or whatever on his line he still played the whole season on the power play with him so yeah well and dry was like he was absolutely terrible for a month and a half, two months until Yamamoto showed up and then he went off like a rocket. Yeah, that's and Yamamoto's another guy that's that would be interesting to talk about. Like once we get to an actual off season so we can talk about players going into the twenty twenty one season. But right. yeah, I mean hell, hell for me, like Hellebuck would definitely be on my heart would be on my heart ballot. Um Nathan McKinnon that you mentioned would be another guy. Um as far as the Vesna, like if I have if I have Hellebuck on my on my heart ballot, then I would definitely have have him as my Vesna winner. So he'd be in my Vesna. As far as the Norris, I mean, yeah, uh, I just I, want, can I stop you there for a second? So uh, I'll just I'll run down my heart ballot. I have McKinnon, Pasternak. You convinced me Hellebuck goes to number three. I've got Panarin at four and Drysidle at five. So like you for the Vesna. I have um, I have Hellebuck number one as well, and um, I don't know if you want to unpack that more. My thing with the Vesna is like Luongo never won it. Henrik Lundqvist only won it once. Goalie performances are like kind of so erratic. People have these like pop up crazy seasons. And I just don't feel like it does an accurate job of like capturing who the best guys are. Like, I mean, Dominic Hasek, he owned it for most of the 90s. So that, like, it, it did its job there. But, like, what if it was, like, the uh, like the championship belt in wrestling where it's, like, you know this guy's the champ and you have to, like, actually beat him to be the champ. So, like, Hasek's got it until he loses a season after he wins a cup with Detroit in 02. And then, like, it gets handed. Like, no one really knows who's got it. Like, maybe it's Brodeur before the lockout. And then maybe Luongo has it after the lockout. But then Tim Thomas has that like outrageous season where it's like, yeah, he stole that thing. And then Lungfist runs with it through the early aughts. And then maybe it's Bobrovsky. But like the past few years, like who's got that thing? Like Carey Price certainly had a couple of years before he injured his knee where he had it after Lungfist. But like who owns the goaltender championship belt? And is that someone I should be thinking about for the Vesna? It's John Gibson. He's it is John Gibson, isn't it? He's the best goalie in hockey. And you can't give it to him because his team's terrible. That's the thing. It's like he's probably been – I think there's a good argument he's been the best goalie in hockey for three years, and there was no chance he was going to win a Vezina in any one of those seasons. And I think that's, that's – when you talk about um, Lundqvist only having one in price, you know um, – or not Price. Luongo. Who's the guy that you said had not? Luongo, that's right. Um, 
when you said that, it just made me think it's not, I don't think there's a problem with a trophy or anything like that. There's a problem with how, how goaltenders are evaluated. You know what I mean? Like, to, and here's, here's the perfect example is this week I had a conversation on Twitter with Dauber about the Jennings trophy. Now the Jennings trophy is for the best goals against average, right? And it's giving to the goalies for the team that have the best goals against average. Um, you have to play at least 25 games or something like that. So there's some seasons where only one goalie wins it, but um, it's for, it, it's given to the goalie for goals against average. But the thing is, is goals against average is a team stat by and large. It's affected by shot volume allowed, not save percentage. So that's, you know, the Jennings trophy is, shouldn't be a trophy for goalies. It should be a trophy for a team. Like just give a team the lowest goal, you know, fewest goals against and, you know, be done with it. And then, if you want to create another trophy and have it for the team with most goals, you know, most goals for or something like that. Um, and that's the problem is that so many people still evaluate goalies by like, uh, honestly, I know given everything that's going on right now, but now that we're talking hockey again, one of my biggest pet peeves that just drives me up the wall because I sit on Twitter so much trying to cultivate in information is you know, beat writers giving out the two go starting goaltenders and then they'll list their goals against average underneath. And I'm like, why? Why are you doing that? It has absolute, not absolutely, almost nothing to do with that goaltender. And you're assigning that stat to him. And I think so many writers and so many media members and, you know, it's the general managers that vote on the business. So that should probably tell you something um, about how they evaluate their goaltenders. Um, there's just so much like, and I'm not even good at like, I can't look at a goaltender and, and tell you how much talent he has. Like I'm a non, not a talent evaluator. I look at numbers, but there's just so much that is clung onto from a bygone era that is detrimental to the understanding of the game that that's why you won't see John Gibson who probably should have won the Vesna last year, he won't win one anytime soon because his team sucks. And because people just look at his goals against him because Anaheim gives up a ton of shots, he's screwed. So I, I, I don't think there's a way, there's a problem with the trophy or there, I don't think there's a problem with the spirit of the trophy. I think there's a problem with the selection and the, and the criteria that the people voting on it, the general managers use to pick the goalie for the Vesna. So how do we fix it? We need, we need a, a world championship belt that a guy can carry with him into the arena, like 82 games out of the year. And he just, he sits there on the bench with it over his shoulder when he's playing backup. You know, I think it, just give it to whoever the players name the player poll. They always do a player poll every year. Which goalie so Carey Price has got it for the last Carey 10 years, Price even though he's dog shit? Like nine, year, nine years running, it's Carey Price. He's probably going to have it till he's like 47 for some reason. Oh, fucking. Yeah, we can't have that. <laughs> sure we can. We can do anything we want. Yeah, well, it's not what I want. I, I want a championship belt voted on by me. <laughs> Okay. Well, maybe if I ever win the lottery, I'll get it. I'll buy a championship belt for you. Okay. Could you please do that and then and yeah, make me I make me the Vince McMahon of hockey? <laughs> okay, I'll do that then. Your fire. fire, and then take away his belt. Uh, yeah. 
Um, so it, any point in running through the runners up for the Vesna or you you good on that? Hell of a no, no. Cause I like, I, I, I don't, I like, I don't even like talking about goalies. I just okay. want to talk about Connor Hellebuck. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, so the Norris, you were starting to dive into that. I think it's Roman Yossi, but I also yeah. think Carlson's going to win it hands down. I also think it should be Yossi. Um, my one, two, it, my one, two, three, in some measure is Yossi, Pietrangelo, um, and Carlson. Now, Carlson is kind of like, it's kind of like um, dry saddle, right? There's just so many points. How can you ignore it? Um, at the same time, you know, not everything is points. But, you know, Roman Yossi only has 10 fewer than he does. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't, I don't know who perform the best i would you know i just haven't watched hockey in 11 weeks um i will say that nashville is nowhere near where they are now i don't even know if they're gonna if they'd be in a playoff play in position without roman yossi like he was just a monster for them right i like no no forward on their team broke 50 points and he has 65 that team was just trash how many and points does Yossi get if he's in John Carlson's spot in Washington? I think he probably, yeah, I think he probably just has as many as Carlson. Like mm. if you switched, if you, I think he probably just have about 75 because um, they don't play Jacob Brana enough. They, Jacob Brana should be leading that team in TOI. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, I would go with Yossi. Uh, like Alex Petrangelo to me, I know people they'll just hang their hat on the Stanley cup season, but I haven't seen a better season from what I remember anyway, of hockey from Alex Petrangelo until this year. Like, I think he was just an absolute monster for that team. He was playing, um, uh, obviously he was playing in all three phases for him as he normally does. Um, he was playing about as many minutes as, as he normally does. You know, they're missing Terrace. They missed Tarasenko for four months or whatever. Um, and he still managed over 50 points. Um, I think Petrangelo had a great season. And then obviously Carlson, like any any defenseman that puts up a point per game um, in this era, even with a little bit more scoring, um, I, I don't care if he has 30 of them on the power play. I really don't. And all, all goals count the same. So um, John Carlson would be on. It'd be some mix of Carlson, Yossi, Petrangelo, I would probably give it to Yossi, but honestly, if any one of those three were to win, I'd just kind of shrug my shoulders and move on. So the thing for me with Carlson is that I don't think people realize that he's turned into like what everyone criticized Mike Green and Eric Carlson for being. He's actually that guy. Like he, he does so much offense, but he like he had this reputation as being a, a two-way guy, but he's like now he's giving it back like he's 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 like his impact is still like immensely positive just looking at uh, dom's game score value added though like his offense he's blowing everyone away in scoring and yet he's only 10th in game score value added yossi's your number one guy um i think petrangelo is number two and so i've got petrangelo and yossi one and two on my ballot. I just think they're they're better two-way players at this point. I don't want to make advanced stats like the the conversation ender, um, but I do think that it does demonstrate just how much they've had outsized two-way impact. And then I've got Dougie Hamilton number three on my ballot because he was running away with this thing and they got hurt 
but now the season it turns out it's only a quarter of like it's a quarter shorter than it was so instead of missing half the year he only missed two-thirds so I think he's back within range uh yeah I mean if Hamilton if Hamilton had stayed healthy I'd, I'd be on on boat with you but uh 47 out of 70 games or whatever I just don't think that's enough that'd be like 55 games in a full season um I just don't think it's enough uh, for me to justify giving him the Norris, even though this is probably the best season that he's had in the NHL to date. But it does bode well for the postseason, right? They're going to get Hamilton back. They're get, they might get Pesci back. Jake Bean um, just won Defenseman of the Year in the AHL. So um, I'd say they're looking just fine on the back end. Yeah, they're, they're loaded. Um, do you care about the Selkie at all? No. Yeah. Okay. We're going to skip right past it. I think we're always two years behind. So um, whoever should have won it two years ago, Sean Couturier, sure. Let's have him win it this year. Okay. Here is one thing. I'll, I'll say one thing, and I'm only going to say one thing only uh, about the Selkie trophy, because it's not one that I gen- genuinely or generally care about. Um, Geek Carbonell was just inducted into the Hall of Fame last year. Was it last year or this year? Man, I can't even remember. I think it was this uh, year. It's been a yeah, long Guy, it's been a long year last two months. Um Guy Carboneau got into the Hockey Hall of Fame with three Selkie trophies and 260 career goals. Yuri Letnin also has three Selkie trophies and has 243 career goals. If Guy Carboneau belongs in the Hall of Fame, Yuri Lettinen belongs in the Hall of Fame because of those Selkie trophies. That's all I'm going to say about Selkie. And he was a winger. Yeah, exactly. Yuri Lettinen. Love him. Yuri Lettinen, Hall of Fame. Um, Where do you land on the Calder? (laughs) What? Do you want to get my my Twitter mentions just flaming? I've I obviously I I've tried to I've tried to extol the virtues of Dominic Kubelik, but I don't see how we don't have three defensemen as one two three this year for the Calder um, Hughes McCarr Fox I really, yeah. really don't um, now I don't want to talk about Hughes and McCarr because I talked about him a lot through the season and I think we're just splitting hairs at that point. Whoever wins out of the two of them, I'll be fine with it. But I think it's Adam Fox that deserves some discussion here. And it's because I don't know. If, when I look at the Rangers right now, I see Panarin and Zibanejad and Kreider um, and Fox and Truba and D'Angelo and Shesterkin. Like there are a lot of pieces here for this team to be very good for years. And I, I wouldn't say that if Adam Fox hadn't had the season that he just had, because he was spectacular in every sense of the word. Uh, he had 42 points with only, what, uh, 11, I think, on the power play, 11 or 12. Like, normally, defensemen, when you get towards – like, he would have flirted with 45 points or so. Normally, when defensemen get to that point, you're looking at guys with, 20 power play points or so like they'll have 40 to 50 percent of their of their production yeah. come from the power play he's not there he's at like 30 percent, and that's impressive to me and not only that but his defensive play his transition he was just excellent in all three phases uh, basically from the start of the season like there wasn't like i i 
I'm pretty sure if I look back at my tweets, like from their opening game or their second game, I'm talking about how good Adam Fox looks. And it was just that way all year long. And I think a big reason why they were anywhere as close to the playoffs, obviously Panarin's insane streak uh, was part of it. Zabanishad going on that hot streak was part of it. But I think, you know, bringing in Truba was big. Um, but I think Adam Fox turning into not even a top pair guy, but a legit number one, which he looks every bit the part that he could be here in the next year or two. That's that changes a franchise that doesn't just make a team better. It changes the course of a franchise. So um, Fox isn't going to win the Calder, but I think there's a decent chance that he ends up the best defenseman out of the three of them. Yeah, the thing is, though, he had, what, four years of college? Like, he's 23. These other guys did it at 19 and 20, and they're, like, they're... Yeah, yeah but it's the Panarin rule. I don't give a shit how old you are, whether you're 18, whether you're 25. If it's your first oh. year, you're a rookie, damn it. I'm not, I'm not saying, like, in terms of the, the Calder discussion. I'm just talking in terms of the aging curve. Where are they going to be at? Oh, okay. So, yeah. like, Quinn oh, Hughes no. doing what he did. And, like, so that gets to kind of where I stand on the Calder is that it doesn't mean a fucking thing. Like, no, when I've been going back through and doing all these redraft pods, I like have, I've been brushing past the Calder trophy in like my consideration of players. Cause it's just a snapshot of where you were in literally your first season. So it's, it's a snapshot of where you were at your worst as a player for a lot of guys, for most guys. And like, does anyone remember that Zidane Chara couldn't skate? He was basically a hunk of Play-Doh for his time on the Islanders. No. Does anyone remember that Eric Carlson was unrefined enough as a rookie that the Senators traded the Tarasenko pick for David Rundblad? No. No one remembers that. No one remembers Joe Thornton playing seven minutes a night and spending two like a third of the season eating popcorn up in the press box as a rookie no one remembers that shit so like ultimately i just i don't care that much about the call i i think it would i think this year specifically it's just the fans of the team right it's the hughes versus mccarr arguments that have been going on since the dawn of time so yeah. I, and I you, think, you I can't think, split those hairs yeah exactly the, i think this year it's, it's just one of those bragging rights things which gives it a little bit of extra zing but yeah i'm with you most of the time i really don't care yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be one of those two, and it doesn't really matter. Um, last one, do you do you have an opinion on the Jack Adams? I mean, I hate to say it, but John Tortorella probably right. Okay. I mean, how? Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, how do you take a team that just went through brutal injury after brutal injury after brutal injury, and not to their depth? not only to their depth, but to their stars as well. Like, like we were talking about Seth Jones and Cam Atkinson and, and so on. Like it's been, it, it was just terrible. And um, not I, to I, mention not, all, all the people who left in the summer, they yeah, lost all I, the superstars. Like, I think, I think they lost like, what was it? Like almost 30 million in combined salary from their roster. Yeah. What guys signed for this summer. And, and not only that, if I'm not mistaken, their power play actually improved this year compared to last year as well um, without all the, with, with those players gone. So Torres got, I'm pretty sure he got a better power play and a better defensive team. And he did that with a very injured roster. Um, I really, I mean, 
there are definitely um, some other candidates. Um, so my top you know, three, my top I, three, I, I, John Tortorella, Mike Sullivan, Jared Bednar, all guys who dealt with like significant major injuries. Yeah, Mike Sullivan is definitely another one that um, probably deserves some praise. Um, Rod Brindamore for me in Carolina would probably be another one. I mean, here's the thing. We know that they made the playoffs last year. They got to the conference finals. We knew they were going to be a good team. But this is still a young team, right? Like Dougie Hamilton is basically the anchor of the blue line. He's like 24 or 25 or something like that. Um, you know, Sebastian Ajo is their top center and he's 21 or 21 or 22 um and you have Sveshnikov on the top line who's 19 you have Nietzsche who just joined the team who just you know got the call this year he's 20 or 21 like there's a lot of players on this team like Slavin is uh 24 25 Brett Pesci's I think he's a little bit older he's like 26 yeah, a couple of years but they're um, all in their 20s except for Justin yeah, exactly. Williams but that's what I mean it's like you know okay Carolina got to got to the playoffs last year and they got to the conference finals. That was a good run, but to keep that team together and playing well, you know, they lost Justin Williams who presumably would be a big part of their, not only their locker room, but or their on ice performance, but the locker room as well, you know, the culture and, and um, trying to keep guys in line. Like that's a, you know, that's a big piece um, for all your intangibles. So um, I definitely do think that Rob Brindamore um, deserves some credit here. So um I'll, I'll, I'll probably, uh, I'll just stick with John Tortorella at the top. Um, I, I just, there's just so many injuries and he still had them playing so well. I just, I, I can see arguments for other guys, but I just, you know, I won't listen to them. Yeah. So like I, I whittled it down starting with teams that like didn't deserve it. So like lottery teams, you guys are out. Uh, teams that made midseason coaching changes, like none of those stood out for me. So that, like all, all those teams are out. I've got rid of over half the league there. Teams that were carried by goalies, sorry, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Travis Green, Paul Maurice, you guys are out. Um, Florida's tire fire defensively, Coach Q, you're out. Uh, New York, Montreal, Chicago, you guys just snuck into the playoffs because we expanded. You guys are out. Um, the Islanders got worse, so the incumbent, Barry Trotz, is out. <laughs> so you got like 12 guys, and then you're basically like – what narrative do you like the most? Like, do you like Rick Tockett being able to plug any goalie in and they're one of the best in the league? Do you like Dave Tippett taking over a terrible Oilers team and getting the most out of them? Do you like Craig Berube, like continuing to be awesome, even though they lost Tarasenko after winning the cup, like avoiding the cup hangover? Do what you about, like, here's, here's another one for you. What about um, Alan Vigneault? Yeah, like similar type turnaround development there as uh, Edmonton, as in Philly. Like they've got to buy this this season with uh, being a top four team in the East. Yeah, they, they pro if the se if the season finishes, they probably get to a hundred points, and they didn't even make the playoffs last year. Yeah. So I'd say that's a pretty big, pretty, and it's mostly the same roster. There's not a lot of guys that were injected. I mean, you, you know, you had Fairby and Frost or whatever throw throughout the season but it's mostly the same roster um i think isn't Vigneault that deserves some isn't that just kind of what Vigneault does though he goes to a new place and clean things up and then things start to fall apart after that yeah and then gets fired two or three years later it yeah. sounds about right um and then like i don't know i i like bruce cassidy for 
you know, they, they lost the cup, but then they come back and they're a monster again. Um, I guess that's, I don't know, that's what Nashville did a few years back. And then they, they fell apart after that. So maybe, uh, maybe not such a good sign. And then I like John Cooper rallying the troops. Like they even sucked at the start of this season, but he's got them playing a little bit different, a little bit more physical and he's, he's getting the most out of them. Like they're, they'd be like, if like no odds were included, they'd be the team that I picked to win the cup. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, um, I just, for me, once you get, I, I think this season, once you get past John Tortorella um, for the Calder, I think you're just, you're just looking at others. You're just looking to fill out your ballot. Like, I think it's a pretty clear cut number one this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm with you. Like that's, I had like pick your favorite narrative and what Tortorella dealt with. Like he's got like double narratives and it's just, yeah, exactly. it's, a, it's a supreme uh, coaching display. So like I yeah. said, like Tortorella, Sullivan and Bednar are my top three. And then I could pick out any two uh, out of the other 12 or 11 or 10, however many I mentioned or, or that we discussed. So that's kind of where I stand. So um, I think we agreed a little bit too much. Um, on our awards ballots, but um, maybe that's a good thing. Well, yeah, that means that once we're both wrong, we all have somebody else to talk to about why we were wrong. For sure. Um, wh when do you think they're going to do the award show over Zoom? <laughs> I don't know, but I honestly think it'll be one of their best award shows ever because every guy is just going to be trashed on it. Oh, I'm excited for that. Yeah, I am too. Hopefully they do it like the end of June or something like that. What do you think about, uh, like, the, the Coyotes are in, so it ruins the fun, but I was really hoping that they would have, like, the, the Sean McIndoe um, teams get to pick a player from every team that got kicked out and then somehow have Phil Kessel not get picked. <laughs> I, did, I didn't read that column. I saw the article, but I didn't read it, but that does seem like a good idea. I want them to get drunk and pick pick teams. Um, yeah, back before we, yeah, back before we knew what the format was, I was like, well, why don't they just like do like all the players get together and do Hockey Island and just like whoever wants to come back, they they get trashed and and pick their teams and go out there and put on their own show. They don't need the NHL to do that. No, they certainly do not. I would like to see that too. Mm -hmm. um, Cliffy, this was a lot of fun. I, I kept you later than we had planned on. Um, so do you have anything to plug? You're, you're doing lots of stuff for Dauber Hockey. Yeah, we're still, uh, we're still kicking at Dauber Hockey. Um, we're posting new content, new stuff every day. Obviously, there's not a lot of hockey news, so it's a lot of uh, research stuff, uh, a lot of, you know, fantasy mailbag questions and stuff like that. But we do have new articles and new ramblings every day, so just head to DauberHockey.com. Uh, and whenever the playoffs start back up, I'll be back over at awesome.com doing daily fantasy hockey stuff. So, um, just keep your fingers crossed that we can get hockey back as soon as possible. Right on. So we'll make sure we, we head over to doc, dauberhockey.com and check out your work, doing the ramblings. What are you twice a week now? Yeah, two or three depends. Um, I have some stuff. Uh, I have a little system with our, our editor, uh, Ian Gooding. So um, sometimes I have two or th two, maybe three weeks. The next week he has two or three. And then uh, the third guy, Cam Robinson, um, great prospect guy. He's he'll, he'll pick up the other couple or whatever's left over. Right on. Yeah. You, you've got uh, a little bit of a, uh, a tandem there, like uh, Tuka Rask and Yaro Halak. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, something like that. Um, we'll say that we'll tell we'll say that uh, Ian's Ian's the Yarrow Halak because he's been around longer and he's definitely underappreciated for how good he is. Are you saying that he uh, he maybe carried the site back in 2010? <laughs> um, I'll leave that up to you. I'll leave I'll leave it up to you to make that distinction. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Cliffy, this was, this was a ton of fun. Thanks again for coming on the pod. Um, stay safe. Yeah, this was a blast, Steve. Stay safe and stay and be well out there, everybody. All right, everyone, that's our show. Thanks for tuning in once again. I thought that was a fantastic conversation. I was supremely entertained by Cliffy. He's, uh, he's always a great guest. And it's been a long time since we chatted on a pod together. I think the last time was 2017 on the old Roto Hockey Show. So really hope you enjoyed it. Stick tap to him for coming on the pod. Stick tap to you for listening to the end. I hope that was a good break distraction from uh, some of the insanity that's been taking place uh, i've got a few good pods scheduled for next week so hopefully we can get to those and like share review wherever you get your podcasts uh, it, it would really help me out i'd really appreciate it so bye now